Hello, world. You're listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. KW Lug discusses topics related to free and open-source software of all kinds. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so you can give it to others, remix it, or even sell it, provided you abide by the terms of the license and share alike the works that you remix and redistribute. For more information about KWLUG, visit kwlug.org. For more information about this podcast, visit kwlug.org slash podcasts. In this month's presentation, Bob B. discusses esoteric features of the firewall distribution PFSense, and Nathan G. introduces the Plan 9 operating system. Okay, so, uh, full disclosure, I have a slight conflict of interest in that I really want to see the Plan 9 presentation, so I want to blast through this as fast as I can so we can get on to the good stuff, just FYI, all right? Um, uh, so a little bit of background, I've been a system administrator for many, many years, um, and my topic of discussion here is some of the more esoteric uh, aspects of PFSense that I use in my home setup. So what I'm going to be showing is um, my home setup. So there's going to be some IP addresses, which are, you know, kind of PII. So for what it's worth, be that as it may, uh, please don't hack me <laughs> or please don't knock on my door too loudly if you if you do. Um, as with every presentation that I do, I always like to give an, an origin story. So uh, in terms of how I came to PFSense, uh, back a long, long, long time ago, I used to use a bare bones Linux host with handcrafted IP tables, which really wasn't very much. It was just basically some masquerading um, and uh, PPPoE agent on it, connecting me through DSL to the internet. At one point, somebody suggested that I take a look at uh, the Astero firewall, um, which I did. And then it, yeah, leave my network better than you found it. Yeah, that, that's good. And if you do, tell me what you did. Um, so Astero, I uh, checked all the boxes. So that's what I ended up installing at home. And that's what I ended up using. I think originally it was a virtualized instance, but I, at this point, I can't even remember. At some point along the way, Astero got bought out by Sophos. Um, but they preserved the licensing terms for Astero, so it was no, be no biggie. I could continue to use their software product. Everything was fine until my brother decided to move to Texas, and he dumped his home lab into my basement, and all of a sudden we hit the limits of what Astero would support in terms of internal hosts. And I think at the time it was something like 150 or something like that, uh, MAC addresses on the inside network, so I had to come up with an alternative. Ended up calling Sophos to say, hey, guys, you know, I've been using uh, Astero for a long time now. I would like to stick with this. What can you do for me in terms of removing the limits on the firewall that you have? And I go, well, you know, we don't really, that's the free tier. That's, that is what it is, but we'd be happy to sell you a license. And I'm going, okay, well, how much? And so they spat out a number. And I'm going, oh, that's not too bad. And then they said the words every year, which made it non-tenable for me. So had to do some digging, and that's where I stumbled across PFSense. Uh, free firewall, checks all the boxes, and no restrictions on it without uh, bot license. So that is my interpretation of it anyway, uh, and that's what I've been using ever since. 
So originally, uh, we had virtualized PFSense. So my brother was living in Texas. He was supporting the infrastructure at my house through a VPN. Uh, but every time we did a hypervisor upgrade, he would lose connectivity to the cluster. So uh, we decided to take the PFSense and move it out of virtual and move it into a physical uh, machine. So this is where I'm going to start to show my screen. You guys see that? Yep. Okay. So the, the machine that we ended up installing PFSense on is this bad boy. You guys see that? Did that show up on your screen? Yep. Yep. So yep. that is Shut up. All right. Cool. That is the machine that it's running on. That's the front view. So it's a plain old generic box. And this is the back of it. Just a mess of wires. And as you can see, there's one, two, three NICs on it that are all connected to the switching inside of the network here. So that was the free version of it. Uh, let me get back to my notes here. Uh, just as an aside too, and I have to show this one because I think it's the cutest thing ever. PFS, uh, NetGate, who are the people that maintain PFSense, also built this guy, which is an SG-1000. I don't think they make it anymore, but um, in deploying the wide area network or the private network out to like my moms and my in-laws and some other people, I use this at their house to build the VPN tunnel and that I could kind of reach into their network and do all kinds of interesting things. I thought that was like the cutest thing ever when it came out. All right. So let me go through some of the more esoteric functions that I know about with the PFSense and that I use with the PFSense. So if we go to uh, diagnostics, backup and restore. So what you really want to do, if you do use PFSense, anytime I go and make any significant changes, I always do this. Do the download and just save a configuration somewhere on my machine. And if that happens, then I can go and if the box dies, I always have a configuration of the latest and greatest of the box that I can go and restore to and bring the box up relatively quickly. So that's, that's a fairly important thing um, that sometimes I forget but most of the time I'm pretty good about doing a backup whenever I've made a change. On the topic of configurations and history, it also has the ability to compare configurations. So you can go through, and not that this really means much because it is XML, but you can kind of get a sense of what the difference was between certain changes. And I think they were time stamped in the config history. So you, here you can see that I disabled uh, I can't remember what I disabled, one of the clients, the IPsec clients. So that's kind of an interesting feature. Another one in diagnostics, if you want to see who's chewing up all your traffic, uh-oh, can I get down here? I think I've made my screen too big, and now I can't get down to the part that I need to show. Um, shoot. Yeah, you can zoom back out. Can I? And then you'll be able to see it. Hang on, let me just try making the font a little bit smaller. Uh, diagnostics. Uh, sorry, where am I going? Diagnostics PF top. So if I want to see who's chewing up all my bandwidth, there is this. So you can see here that uh, I don't know what the loopbacks are. I don't know what my brother's doing. But somewhere on here, you can actually see my 
connection from my desktop to the big blue button box. So you kind of get a sense of what's going on on your machine. You can also filter it out. So um, actually, I, I don't know how that, I didn't even prepare for that one, so I'm not even going to try. But here you can see a list of all the connections that are going through the firewall. So it's kind of like the, uh, the state table, if you will. But it also tells you who are the top talkers, so who's moving the most amount of bandwidth through the place. Right? Um, that's one way of doing it. Under diagnostics, there's also, I've installed uh, NTOP NG. Uh, so NTOP was a tool for flow capturing, so you can measure how much, um, how much and what traffic was moving through your systems. So this is top talkers right now. So I'm guessing this one might be the Bitcoin node that I have set up right now, because that seems to move a fair amount of traffic consistently through it. But NTOP shows you all kinds of interesting things like, uh, actually, let me go back. I go traffic dashboard so I can have a look at all the hosts. So this is my desktop here. So surprise, surprise, it's doing the most amount of traffic in the house because I'm on this call right now and probably there's a whole bunch of open tabs on my uh, Firefox that's sucking stuff down constantly. But that's a pretty powerful tool to keep tabs on what's chewing up your bandwidth if you ever really needed to, to see it. And that's actually a, um, a package that you have to install inside of PFSense, but PFSense will then link you into it and then you can jump into there through the PFSense UI. Another thing that I do with my PFSense, and it, it doesn't really matter so much for this one because I have a fixed IP at my house, but for my, my mothers and my in-laws, they're on dynamic uh, IP addresses. So what, what I've got set up is I have a domain name set up out there that has the ability to do dynamic DNS. So what, I, what I've done is configured PFSense to talk to that, uh, how does that work exactly? It talks to the DNS server that is serving up this domain name and tells it, hey, for PFBob, I want you to set the IP address of me. And so there's, with free D with, um, who the hell's the registrar again, Namecheap, there is a way of doing it where there's a secret that gets configured into the DNS zone. So if my IP address ever changes, the PFSense itself will send a message to Namecheap's DNS server saying, hey, pfbob.bobo.ca is IP address, blah, blah, blah. And so that comes in handy, like I said, for my mom's PFSense because she's with uh, tech savvy on a, on a cable modem. And so sometimes when she has a power failure or sometimes when tech savvy does some work, they make changes and she picks up a new IP address and I can always find her because I know what her host name is under this domain and it will have updated accordingly so that I can always find it. If there's any questions, somebody just jump in and interrupt me, please. Cause I'm having a hard time following the conversations if there are any. Okay. Sure. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to show was SNMP. So I have a fair amount of networking people that I work with too. And I, I did a fair amount of networking at one of my clients. So I always like to monitor things. So PFSense has the ability to run an SNMP server where you can go in and pull a whole bunch of things. So I just use the default community and then I present it on all interfaces, but I only really allow 
the uh, firewall to pass through on the inside network. So this doesn't look very interesting from this end, but I actually use a tool called Libra NMS internally here where you can actually see the firewall. So if I go to PF Bob eventually, PF Bob. So Libra NMS is an, it pulls my PF Sense box and pulls down a whole bunch of information through SNMP. So from here, you can see, you know, the resolved IP address internally, the hardware is running on a 64-bit architecture. Here's the operating system. Uh, here's the last time it was discovered completely. Here's how long it's been up. Here's where I live. Congratulations. <laughs> That's not right, but close enough. Anyway, um, and so, you know, this is a traffic graph of all the traffic that, that moves through the box. So you can see offsite backups being pushed to my house here in the middle of the night. That's what that spike is. Here's the CPU utilization. Sorry about that. Uh, the disk utilization. So if it, if it gets high, there's an automatic rule in Libra NMS to send out an alert and warn me that my disk space is being used up. One of the more interesting things on here is you can actually go through and do real-ish time monitoring of the internet, of the interface. So RE0 is my interface that faces the internet and I can actually go through and I can have a nice little graph that updates, you know, on these intervals. So let's say every quarter second. So this is a real time indicator of how much data is being moved through my, uh, through my outside facing interface. And this is kind of neat too, because if I were to run, uh, let me see if I can do an I per, um, uh, speed test over here. Fast.com. Uh, so here I'm doing the inbound speed test. You can see it kind of throttling my inbound bandwidth. I don't, I'm not sure how I sound at the moment. And then I can do uh, an outbound. I'm not sure if you guys can hear me at all. The outbound is making you choppy. Yeah, that's what I thought. So yeah, I got an old school DSL line here. Um, so 30 by 10, and you can actually see what I can really push here. Am I back to normal now? Yeah, you or sound okay still... to me. You're, okay. You're, you're, you're a little bit choppy. Okay. So speed it's test audible. is done. All right, speed test is done, so I should be back to normal. But that's just to show you how you can get an indicator uh, in real time about the amount of uh, traffic that you're pushing through PFSense by using the SNMP daemon on the PFSense and some sort of NMS tool that uses SNMP to, to do those kinds of metrics. So I thought that was kind of cool. And, and even though it's not PFSense necessarily related, I still thought it was kind of interesting. You can also see other things like, uh, where the hell is it, ports. So there's three physical ports on it with multiple VLANs on it. So you can go through and see the traffic that's going between those or coming in and out of there with some nice fancy graphs. These graphs are always cool to look at. All right. Back to PFSense then. One of the other services also that I run on here is a squid proxy. So uh, I kind of use this. I'm not really going to go into it too deep, but I kind of use it when I do installations. Like if I'm installing a brand new virtual machine, I will 
point the proxy at this guy. So if I already have the packages downloaded, I don't have to go to the internet to pull them down. Because as you can see, my internet is only like 22 megabits down. So it's not really the fastest thing in the world. And if I can cache as many packages as I can locally, that makes it that much quicker. But just so you know, you know, uh, Squid exists as a package that you can install in PFSense. And it's a fairly simple GUI-ish configuration. And I'll show you a little bit about its location on the on the disk later on when we get to the CLI part. Okay, one of the other things that I use PFSense for is for certificates. So internally, uh, between my brother and myself, we've decided that his machine in Texas is going to be a CA for our machine. So what we did is on his machine, we created a CA certificate called Sandman.ca. And so we use this to issue certificates for our internal HTTPS servers that we want to use. So we, we take that and when we create a certificate, so let's say um, I use Portainer, right? So I created a certificate for Portainer using him as the issuer and I put that onto my Portainer server and I also loaded his public CA key or public CA certificate into my certificate store on my Mac so that when I go to Portainer, right, my lock comes up solid. So it's, it doesn't complain about a unsecure website. But when I click on it, it doesn't recognize the certificate Mozilla doesn't recognize the certificate, but because I've installed the certificate on my machine, my browser doesn't complain about it. So if I go here, you see portainer.softscape.ca, the issuer was that sandman.ca CA from here that issued it. And because I can actually, I can show you the keychain, but I imported it into my keychain manager as a trusted uh, CA. So now my system in general, Firefox itself has to have it imported separately from the system, but Firefox doesn't complain if it's, if it's issued by an unknown CA because I've decided to trust the CA that did the issuance, if that makes any sense to you guys. So John was asking, so what do you have to do in Firefox in order yeah. to trust it? You just so, manually go in and trust it for that one machine and all the other yeah. machines on your network won't trust it? Uh, nope, hold on a second. So if you go into Firefox... Uh, use certificates. I had to import that as an authority into here. So uh, somewhere inside of here, I should see that sandman.ca certificate. Please don't make me a liar. Yeah, right there, right? So from the PF, from my brother's PFSense, you have to take this and export it. I can't remember exactly how I did it. Export the certificate. And then in Firefox, you have to import that as a trusted CA. And so any certificates issued by that CA will be trusted by the version of Firefox that has that CA imported as a trusted, trusted CA. Right, and you're sense. doing that on every client that wants to do set trust. Correct. Yeah. yeah. There's another question from Alexandru who says, 
Um, is there any way to show up how to set up the DNS to update itself um, for Namecheap or other DNS providers if there's any link? So this might be the dynamic DNS stuff. Uh, sounds like it. So yeah. did you want, do you want me to show, uh, do you want to see the Namecheap end of it? Because that's where the configuration would be that you have to put the corresponding information into PFSense to get it to, to update public DNS. I think Alexandra may have gotten kicked off of the big blue button. I'm uh -oh. presuming I didn't do that intentionally, but <laughs> it looks like you may have left. Uh, he, when he returns, maybe we can take up that question again. Okay. So, I, John, does that that that's to your point about Firefox has its own trust stores? Yes. But if you were yeah. doing something with Safari, Safari would use the keychain access one. So you'd probably have to put it into both places. Like, honestly, to me, it's not a big deal. We were just kind of playing around with it. So we decided to set it up just to kind of reinforce our understanding of it more than anything else. And so I think I have a, I really hate to say I understand certificates, but I kind of understand them a little bit better than I did before by playing with them at this level. Right. I might actually, um, personally, I don't like the idea of using um, a custom CA, but if I was going to use one, I, I would like it to be maybe in my less trusted browser. So then I know that my other browser, I, I'm not at risk if I'm using yeah. uh, secure sites. The thing about Firefox too, like I find if you use multiple profiles, it, it doesn't persist across profiles, I think. I think if I import it into one uh profile in Firefox, it doesn't show up in the other profile by default. I don't know that for certain, but that would be an interesting test. And that might be another way of kind of, I don't know, keeping it separate. Again, it wasn't really for a security thing. It was just for edification and making sure that we understood what we thought we understood was the way it actually worked. And it turns out we were kind of mostly correct in the way that it All right. So Alexandru is back. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate on your question? I don't know if you have... Oh, you're, you're on listing mode easily only. So um, we wanted to know whether you're thinking about the Namecheap side or whether you're talking about the, the, the PFSense side in terms of how to get the uh, DNS to update itself dynamically. He's typing, so. Oh, okay. So on the PFSense side, really, like if you walk through this... Um, Here's where I saw the Namecheap, right? So you would select Namecheap inside of here, right? And then you would say uh, ASDF. And then the, the domain name on Namecheap is where you would have to create the records for dynamic DNS and say these are dynamic DNS records. And so there's a secret that is created on Namecheap, or I, I can't remember if it's created or you have to insert it there, but it has to be the same on both sides. So, you know, my domain would be that. And under Namecheap, I would have a record, an A record called ASDF, which would be a dynamic DNS record. And then you would put, for Namecheap, I only needed the password. So I put those two things in here and then a description and I save it and I apply it to the WAN interface. So PFSense would automatically know that if the WAN interface, anytime the WAN interface changed, or if PFSense just rebooted, it would reach out to the bobo.ca domain name based on its NS records, which happens to be Namecheap, and use whatever protocol Namecheap is using and say, 
ASDF's A record is now blah, which would be the IP address that was assigned to me when I booted up or when I renegotiated a, a dynamic IP. Does that answer your question, Alexander? All right, cool. And you can always email me afterward if you, I can show you the, um, the uh, Namecheap setup for that too, if you really wanted to see it. Okay. Getting back to uh, my stuff here. So one of the other things I did on my PFSense here is um, I needed to create certificates for my land-to-land -land VPNs because OpenVPN needed to use it. So I just wanted to point that out to you that I also have a CA on my, uh, on my certificate manager on my PFSense. And for here, I created a bunch of certificates that I'm going to show you later on in the land-to-land -land VPN stuff. So, for example, my mom. My kids are into your mama jokes, so feel free to let them rip. Um, I created uh, a certificate for my mom's. Uh, just basically, the only thing that I really is of interest there is that the, the, co the common name was just mom. That's it. Everything else was just kind of like basic certificate generations, but I just wanted to make sure that the common name was mom. And so you'll see how that fits into the picture later. So moving on to the VPN stuff. Uh, initially, when I started this up, I was IPsec only. So I think I was doing a land-to-land -land VPN tunnel to my brother's house into a machine that we had dropped off at my employer who has a, a DC uh, a data center. So I had that sitting in there and I built a couple of IPsec VPN tunnels because that's really all I knew at the time. It was a pain in the butt getting it to work, but I did manage to get it work. Uh, and as you see here, I also had an IPsec VPN client from my laptop that I was able to connect to my home machine and be able to reach to the inside of my network. But that's now long gone. I, I don't use that anymore, but I just wanted to show that for historic relevance. One of the other more interesting things recently that has come on board was WireGuard support. And this is not natively baked into PFSense, but I think it is natively baked into OpenSense, which is a fork of PFSense as I understand it, but has a much faster release cycle and I think is more community supported. Whereas PFSense is, I, I guess, supported by NetGate um, and they don't, they don't have as fast a release cycle as they do. But um, you can actually install the WireGuard tunnel or the WireGuard VPN, and you can fire it up, or you can configure it on here. I was going to show you connecting from my phone, but I, I don't, I don't think I need to show you that. Okay. Now, if I knew what OpenOffice to LibreOffice, then I would be able to figure that out. But anyway, just just so you know, um, WireGuard it can do WireGuard. We had a bit of an issue. I think uh, my brother tried to set this up. We also have a co-location. We rent out. Uh, a bare metal server over at OVH in Montreal. He tried putting this on our PFSense box over there, but it caused problems with the rest of the traffic. And so it was a known bug for the uh, WireGuard implementation for PFSense. So we rolled that back and we actually put a WireGuard server inside the network and just poked the hole through the firewall to get to it. And that seemed to work much better. But I have this configured here. Again, I was playing with it. I never really cleaned it up. I kind of have it as an emergency access point. So my phone has um, the corresponding private key that matches this one, and I can get into my network from my phone with WireGuard. Uh, 
okay. And then the main VPN that we use at the house is OpenVPN. So across the top here, you'll see servers, clients, client-specific overrides, and a bunch of other stuff too. The important thing I want to highlight here is that I have two OpenVPN servers. There is this one running on this port, and there is this one running on this port. Oops. This one is the LAN-to-LAN -LAN OpenVPN server. So this is the one, and maybe I should show you a diagram of the network that we have at our house. So between my brother and myself, this is my house. This is my mom's house. This is my in-laws. This is my brother's in-laws. This is uh, at the data center of my employer. This is my brother's place in Texas. And this is our uh, co-location at OVH in Montreal. So all of these guys build VPN tunnels, land to land VPN tunnels back to my house. So we can, I can reach into my mom's, you know, uh, TV, her Mac there. I also have a, a Proxmox box sitting at her house that I use for offsite backups that I just push stuff out over the, over the private wide area network to get there. Um, yeah, that's it for that one. And then I kind of wanted to briefly touch on how I did that. I'm going to try to blast through this pretty quickly. Um, within the server, uh, so in the LAN-to-LAN -LAN server, using UDP over IPv4, the port that I'm using here locally, there's a TLS key that needs to be deployed to all of them. Not really part of the tunnel, but it's for handshaking and bringing up the tunnels, as I understand it. you have a question about the, the sites and site-to-site -site VPNs and certs? Give me a yeah. second. I might actually tackle that in a second. Or do you want to ask anyway? No, nope, it can wait. Okay. So the server certificate for this guy is that CA that I showed you that I generated my mom's certificate from. Okay. That I wanted to point that out. And then further down in the configuration, the tunnel network, this is what's used on the point to points to the firewalls. The local networks that I will present to the satellite sites and these are the networks on the satellite sites so this is you know my mom's i don't know what this is this is at ovh i believe this is at my brother's place this is another network at ovh and down the line right uh, so that is the open vpn land to land server that exists on my machine so I don't, this does not function as a client. So that's kind of confused me initially. There are no, I don't do any client configuration on here. The only thing that I do is client specific overrides. So if you can see here, this is where the certificate that I generated, the common name comes into play. So on my mom's PFSense, I had her OpenVPN client load up the certificate so that when she connected to me, I could pull off the fact that it was somebody identifying as mom connecting. And then once that is determined, then I can go into here and then I can do interesting things like say, okay, well, her remote network is this. And then I can push out a bunch of routes to her firewall so she knows how to get to things once she connects to me. Now, Paul, is that where your question was going with the certificates, or did you have something else? Uh, it was related, but something else. So one of the things I've always worried about with these site-to-site -site configurations is 
security. So somebody breaks into your brother's network. Now they have access to everything in at least your network at home and whatever other sites they that that you've configured to be able to be accessible from your brother's network. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So so and, and that doesn't make you lose sleep. Nah, not really. Similarly, yeah. I've always wondered about like using PF Sense, and if you're using it as a certificate authority, now your certificate authority is on your firewall. And is that okay? Um, I think PF Sense thinks it's okay, but I'm not sure I understand why. Because now, again, if somebody breaks into your one PF Sense they now have, or actually, I guess your brother's PF Sense, then it's then they have everything. Do they not? Right. Um, yeah. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not doing these certs for anything super protective. Like I didn't put the certificate onto my portainer box because I wanted to make sure that I always connected to my portainer box. I just wanted to see if I can get rid of the error message. But even the open VPN certificates are stored on somebody. So maybe they're stored on your PF since then. They are. Yeah. So then you better hope that nobody can sneak in. Like one of the people who's watching this video can watching yep. this presentation can't sneak in and break into your PF Sense box and steal all your certificates because then I guess they get access to your entire infrastructure then. They could, exactly, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have a great answer for that one other than that I'm I'm old and I, I don't really know how much I care about that anymore. You know, like, yeah, they could. I'm really not that interesting a target other than if you just want to be a griefer. You know what I, I bet mean? your employer's an interesting target though. Yeah, but none of this stuff, like, to get to my employer is basically a Rube Goldberg infrastructure. Like, I don't have a VPN to my employer. I use another method to get into them, right? Okay. And in order I thought to... that in your diagram there was something at your employer's site. Yeah, but it's my server at my employer's site. Oh, I see. Right? And like that's kind of gapped from all of the access to your other employer stuff, so you can't hop hopscotch, hopscotch oh. to that server and then... Correct. Think of it as free, like OVH, but free. Yeah. So they, they had some space and they allocated me, uh, you know, 100 megabit Ethernet cable and said, here, just throw your server into there. And I got a small little Think Center box with one NIC on it. I threw that in there and that's running PFSense. And they give me a public IP range. Like I think it was a slash 29. Um, and then I have a couple of IP address I can screw around with. I see. Well, there's some conversation going on there. Uh, would I do it the same way? If I was redoing this right now, I think I would do WireGuard all the way. It's it's so much simpler, and it's, you know, by all accounts, I think it's much faster, too, than some of the other technologies. Yeah. Okay. So that, I think, I was going to show you on my mom's... Uh, show you really quickly on my mom i kind of all do you want me to stick to eight o'clock or can i get a couple of minutes afterward um i think that's up to nathan i think you can probably have like another five minutes or so but don't have 20 minutes yeah no definitely not Uh, i'm anxious to see the plan nine stuff too so uh, i want to move on um so on my mom's if i if i look at her system she also has a cert manager why I've imported that land to land server certificate and I imported her certificate that I generated 
for the Lance Land VPN. And if you look on her OpenVPN configuration, she has a client configuration because she's only using the client portion. Hers was done using the, where is it? Where is that certificate? The peer certificate authority, and then that's the client certificate. So this is how she identifies herself that I know which profile to push out to her based on the certificate that she presents to me. Only she actually understood that, that would be amazing. But anyway, baby steps. Um, okay. Da, 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 da. So just another point too, uh, when you saw me go into PF mom here, let's bring up. So if I go PF mom, so that is an internal IP address, which resolves, right? But she also has a configuration on the dynamic DNS. So she also has a record called pfmom.bolo.ca where her public IP address presents. So if for some reason the VPN goes down, which occasionally does, I have a front door actually, instead of the back door, I come in through the front door here and she has a rule on her firewall that only lets me SSH from my home IP address in. And then I can do all kinds of interesting things to troubleshoot and get things sorted out over there. Then closing up, a um, couple of more things here. So this, you can also SSH into PFSense, right? So if, if I SSH, SSR is just an alias for SSH as root. You can jump into a shell. Some of the more interesting things on the firewall that you can do, like I'm a command line guy. So when I troubleshoot, when I look at things, I can actually look at the filter log so I can see if it's blocking and passing things. When I'm trying to troubleshoot uh, uh, VPN stuff, there's, uh, where is it here? Open VPN log, right? So you can kind of see error messages creep up through here if you've got a problem going on there. You can also do very interesting things. Like, so if you do an IF config, you can see all the interfaces on it. Uh, my actual interface is, a VLAN, I think it's VLAN 101, right? So this being my interface, I can actually do really interesting things like TCP dumps on the firewall itself. So this I find interesting, so you can kind of see what's going on. So this is me SSH'd into here, right? If I wanted to see everything that my desktop was pushing through the PFSense right now, I know that's my IP address, so I can see all the stuff that's going through there. Uh, did I just kill myself? You guys still hear me? Yeah, you're okay. Okay. I don't know what happened there, but uh, yeah. Okay. I thought I killed it. So that's one of the more interesting things. And then I promise you I'd show you Squid. Um, Squid. So this is the directory that things get installed. Squid also has a bunch of logs. So you can see things on my home network network. Uh, like securitydebian.org, that's one of the things that if, if I pull it down once, I don't want to have to reach out and pull it down again. So that's what I use the squid proxy on here. You can also see the cache and that it uses about eight gigabytes of cached stuff on my PFSense. That's all that I really had. Uh, if there's any questions, I think probably if, you, if they're quick, ask them now, or if you want to hit me up on the mailing list or email me directly, um, yeah. Uh, that's my so presentation. Jim Kerr has a question. Sure. 
and you put it in the chat. There's one VPN operating on his network. Can he safely add another VPN on it, like OpenVPN? Do you mean like VPN on your gateway device, on your border device, or something else that goes through it? So let's see if John elaborates on that. You have microphones, so you can hop on voice if you want, John, or you can type in the chat. John Kerr goes through it. Goes through it. Yeah, uh, um, there is. So I know for IPsec, there was an issue because would you use port 500 for part of the negotiation? And then if you were behind a NAT, it would actually jump up to port 4500. And I know that there were sometimes issues where if you had multiple devices behind a NAT trying to do IPsec, there would be a problem. But I can't remember the nature of it exactly, but I know that I have had multiple IPsec clients behind a NATed VPN and they worked. I think I had to separate them based on endpoints. So if I had a couple of VPN clients internally connecting to a single IPsec endpoint, that was okay. But if I had another IPsec client inside my network connecting to a different VPN endpoint, I actually had to NAT to a different IP address. But that, I might be misremembering that too, because I think there was actually a, a configuration option on the VPN concentrator that needed to be changed to, so that would work normally. But yeah, I mean, multiple VPNs, I, I do it all the time. Through firewalls, two firewalls. It's fun, actually, because usually it's not trivial. Anyway, that's my presentation. Thank you very much. Um, again, the, some of the more esoteric components of PFSense. Um, yeah, that's all I got. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Bob. You didn't actually show any of the actual firewalling stuff, which was interesting. Ah. <laughs> Is it the basic stuff? Um, it's not esoteric. That's the stuff everybody does with the firewall, so I kind of left it out. Okay. We could save that for another day, but I, there's really nothing interesting there. Like, it's just basically masquerading, maybe a couple of port forwards. And that's it. Perfect. Um, so I think as we saw in the last presentation, it was, in fact, a Unix box, not like PFSense being a FreeBSD distribution, uh, more or less. Um, and this also is not a Linux distribution either, but it's also not Unix. So, Plan 9, I can't believe it's not Unix. Uh, did I? That was a typo, so we are going to correct that later. Okay, so, in Unix we have the idea of, like, do one thing and do, one, and do it well, right? But you've got your Dbus, your Emacs, your Systemd, like, if I'm changing music, that's not, like, Dbus also does a bunch of different things. Same with Emacs, I can, like, spell check and type at the same time. Systemd, not even worth mentioning it for that kind of thing, right? Um, but, like, I'm not a purist as far as Unixisms go, and if you're using Linux in 2023, really neither are you. Oh, did we lose slides? I think I can still see them too. Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah, just go on. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, so yeah, like, purism isn't necessarily, like, a good thing or a bad thing. And likewise, Plan 9 is not, like, the purest OS to, designed to save us from all evil. But it's also not, like, this relic thing that a lot of people think it is. So 
is it modern? Well, yeah, and it's actively developed too. Um, the community is pretty small, um, a lot of fun, but yeah, not the biggest, but also it's still active. Plan 9 has also influenced a lot of things. So, I mean, you've got Golang, which anyone who has worked with Golang, who knows its history, would like see that, yeah, there's quite a bit of history there. Even the directory structure sometimes, historically, was very Plan 9-y. Um, 9P2000, which is the protocol that Plan 9 talks to basically everything with. That's in QEMU. That's in a Windows subsystem for Linux. Like, that, it's... And that's just the things I thought of. Yes, thank you, Doug. It is UTF-8. I think I have that in the next slide or somewhere. Um, yeah, so it's like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so um, like, where did it come from? It's really a research operating system that was designed from a lot of the original Unix people. Um, it's, and sorry about these random bullets here. They get corrected later. Um, but yeah, a lot of the original Unix people kind of had a lot of free time, surprisingly, at Bell Labs, and decided, with motivation for finances, of course, to write a more like thoughtful and less old, archaic operating system, still with a lot of the ideas they had from Unix. Um, what makes it special? Well, it's a forward-thinking OS where, like, Unicode and internationalization, like, these are things that it does really, really well and is designed to do really, really well. Like, you can write C code that has UTF-8 inside of it. You can't do that in most places. Um, it's incredibly flexible. It is as well... Um, where am I in my notes here? Sorry about that. So, yeah, it's just a very, like... Oh, and people wanted, like... The, the developers wanted a operating system that could respond to the needs of tomorrow, where like offices and people, rather than time-shared mainframes, which this is getting into the 90s of the first point of development. And time-shared mainframes were already by then starting to go. <laughs> um, and you have massive simplicity in code. So you in, if you want to like express between a ARM machine and which I think is, uh, well, some ARMs are um, little NVN, um, and some are big NVN, um, or NVN, sorry. And so to do that, you don't use uh, if defs. You would like just um, shift the bits in the code on return, which doesn't quite make sense if you're used to like dealing with lots and lots of complex ways to deal with code, but in the Plan 9 world, it works really, really well. Um, there's fewer binaries, fewer special files. So almost everything in Plan 9 that isn't a, like there's a lot of binaries, but also a lot of shell scripts. Um, and there's very few special files, which are instead of like, you know how in dev, like the dev directory you would have like, I don't know, uh, <laughs> uh, your hard drive, for example. Well, that's not a special character device. That's just a almost text file that you can access directly. Um, there's more interfaces and more shell things as well. Um, so what do you do with it? Well, I mean, really, computers are still computers. Like, it's designed with very good ideas. Um, but you can still, just because it's like 
not the most popular thing in the world doesn't mean you can't do everything inside of it, right? Um, it's a networked OS, so like, it's really designed to work with people. But as we'll see in a moment, um, I have a system that's just kind of isolated on its own and just works on it like in, independent of other computers. Um, it, you can make distributed applications incredibly easily um, by mounting directories that are these 9P2000 uh, things, which I won't show because that's not something I prepared for. Um, but basically, like I like it because the interfaces, both in code and the GUI, are really, really simplistic like there's very few things that like i don't know if you're looking in windows right you'll get notifications in your sidebar every time someone sends you a message in whatsapp or discord or whatever um same on your phone but in plan nine i choose what i subscribe to so there's no like jumping notifications there's nothing to really distract me there's just text wonderful wonderful text um and what can't you do with it? Well, Steam, Steam support is planned in 2035. Not, not actually, unfortunately. Oh, well. Um, so the further reading I started, and I'm kind of blowing through this because I want to show a lot of things here on, my, on the demo. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so they, it's not quite done yet, I swear. Um, so the Plan 9 front is the primary location where where you'll get um plan nine things right like what am i saying plan nine things yeah that's plan nine front is the primary operating system that is continued today um you have your source code repositories are primarily there there's historical reference repositories um but that's what's actively developed cat, cat 5 is the irc and the code itself is designed to be incredibly easy to read which i'll show um, the only other thing in the slide that I wanted, that I didn't put in the slide rather, was that the International Workshop in Plan 9 is coming up in Waterloo very soon, March, I believe. Um, and if anyone sees that like Plan 9 is cool to them, or I don't know, if, <laughs> if you like what you're going to see, um, definitely uh, I, you could probably send me an email or there's Plan 9 fronts. And the IWP9 people, International Workshop for Plan 9, have a website. Oh, yeah, let me grab that real quick. Uh, and it is the ninth International Workshop in Plan 9, uh, which is not intentional, but um, it's been a while since they've had one. So that is going to be at Waterloo. So um, now I have a demo here, which I may need some assistance in getting back through, Paul. Can you help? Sorry about this. Yeah, just give me a second. I'm finding you. Oh. Where'd you go? There you are. Thank you, presenter. You should be able to share your screen from FreeBSD now. Wonderful, thank you. So just to clarify, um, this part of the presentation, I 
have my laptop kind of a little bit far away from my mic, which is not intentional. Um, but if you can't hear me, perfect. Thank you. Um, so the demonstration, share my screen. Okay. So here we are on, uh, my FreeBSD system, which is really just my laptop. It virtualizes plan nine for me. I have uh, Plan 9 Bare Metal on an older laptop, which works incredibly well. Uh, but I was really lazy setting this presentation up and decided to virtualize it within Vive, or Beehive, sorry. Um, the one drawback, I suppose, not even, just a component of using a virtualized uh, Plan 9 installation is that they have a special client that you can use to connect to it. Um, Plan 9 doesn't work over SSH, which is surprising if you're coming from Unix world. Like, if you're going to do text editing, you mount a remote directory. If you're going to do anything else, um, even playing music, you mount a remote directory, which is, again, different from a Unix world. That's done over the uh, 9p protocol. And so here we have a very simple, here it is, um, way to get, if I recall correctly, this is the uh, wave decoder within plan nine. Uh, wave decoder being a way to like get just sound going from one device or going from a wave file into your actual sound device. Uh, so I'll just quickly go through those. It's not anything special, but as we can see here, like you've got your, just the way that the C is written, it is still C, but it is not difficult, which is something I find very cool. So Plan 9 provides an incredibly interesting text editor which is the least interesting text editor I've ever seen, and that is, to me, what makes it amazing. You have a, so I'll close it and then reopen it, just so we, oops. <laughs> as I struggle to do anything here. Oh, as I press the wrong button. So this is an excellent opportunity to show what it is that you can do um, within how you launch things. So DrawTerm is a program that I just compiled. Uh, you can get it off of the Plan 9 front website. Uh, it, the older version that's available in most Unices are not, um, it's not up to date uh, with a Plan 9 front distribution. But as we see here, um, what we're going to do is so this is basically your ssh so you've got your draw term and then dash authenticate to my device virtual um and then yeah yeah sorry it's uh x term so i don't know how i can zoom in so what you can do is you can stop sharing and then oh. choose to share again, and you can share just the one window. Gotcha. 
Okay. And if that window is like, don't make that window giant like this, make it the size it was before. And then it'll be really nice big text for us to see. Thank you. I'll do that. Unfortunately, I have too many externs. So I'm going to have to guess here. Never mind. Got it. Perfect. So yeah, that looks good for that looks good to me. Within a plan nine network, um you have your there's numerous components, which I am completely brushing over. And if this doesn't make sense, it I'd be surprised if anyone who doesn't have familiar with Plan 9 knows everything I'm talking about here. So you have an authentication server, which is not uh, right, similar to um, what you would use in a larger network in a Unix system. The name for which I am forgetting, unfortunately. But basically, you have your authentication server, which authenticates you between different components on the network. Um, you have your host that you're connecting to, of course, uh, which I this one here. Uh, and then your user, which is Glenda, which is the root. Uh, Glenda is root in Plan 9. It's kind of a joke, but also not, because they changed a lot of different things about how Plan 9 works between unices. So you now have the browser. Is that perfectly visible? I think we lost a. I think it, it's not radius that I mentioned, but no, sorry. I think the screen share ended. It did, yeah. Sorry. It's okay. Perfect. Okay. So unfortunately, draw term is not the world's most compatible thing with everything else in the system. So I, sorry, as I try to figure this out. Um, is the host system IP wrong? <laughs> it may very well be. Uh, octets. Is it supposed to have four? Thank you very much, Paul. I'm I should have done more devourers. So, uh, there we go. Okay, so here we have, um, you type in your auth server, which is really just the host that authenticates you to other hosts. Um, it's one of those things that it makes sense when you start to do it in Unix, or in Plan 9, but from our Unix worlds, is a bit different. So, um, often, uh, depending on the configuration of draw term, you will either start in a graphical window or just like this. But from here, we can remotely launch a X terminal, or what it, what is the same similar system to a X window. So we start Rio, which is the window manager. Oops, we create a terminal in Rio, um, and then start the rest of the system, uh, mount the rest of the system, sorry. Now again, this has been a pretty big whirlwind tour through even just what Plan 9 looks like. I'm going to talk a little, about the, a little bit about the interface itself, 
Um, and then I think that would be a good point to take questions. So in plan nine, the entire, uh, as I alluded to in my point about the, um, uh, the lack of distraction is that like you decide where all of your windows are. Um, there's tiling in a modified version of Rio, but I find the, the existing Rio, what has been around since the 90s, how to be perfectly acceptable. Um, so everything that we do, regardless of whether it is a, uh, a um, graphical application or a uh, non-graphical application, a text application, is done within Rio itself. Um, done within a, um, sorry, a terminal window. Um, the terminal itself is different. Um, a lot of things are quite different. Um, so, I feel like there's, I've kind of gotten to the point where this is everything that I was hoping that I would like introduce about Plan 9. Um, I've given a lot of very vague ideas of what on earth this system is, what it looks like, and not much more because to show the entire, like to show a lab exercise, for example, would I think be a bit too much of an investment of time. So does anyone have any questions? It's Plan 9 something I could download as an ISO and spin up as a virtual machine on my hypervisor? Absolutely. Um, the only hypervisor that it probably doesn't work with at this point is still Zen. The Zen hypervisor support is a little bit lacking, but here I'm on Bive, right? Or Beehive, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, I've used it before in QEMU. Um, I can take you to the website where... Now, just a word of, like, not warning exactly, but um, their GitHub is called ShitHub. It, their sense of humor is, like, as I put it before, like, not professional, but also not, like, offensive or oppressive. It's just weird. And I kind of like them for that reason. So the plan nine, uh, sorry, ninefront.org. Uh, we can just go and got your... Uh, releases. And once that loads, you'll get an ISO down there. Um, which, yeah, you can put it on a Raspberry Pi as well. Um, you can put it on, oh, and uh, Reform, the MNT Reform, is an amazing laptop which has managed to achieve first class support because that is what everybody uses, except me. Um, so. So when I set I, it up with the VM, I just go through the normal motions. Like I, I give it a NIC, I give it a disk. How big of a disk would I assign to it? To ideally it? 20 gigabytes. Mm -hmm. Um, the way that the disk, the way that the, um, file system works is that it appends everything rather than allows you to delete files in the same way which works really well in a distributed system setting. Not so well for a personal computer, but that is okay because we have lots of disk space. Um, does that answer your question? 
Yeah, I, it, just one more on that topic. And network-wise, like I, it'll pick up a DHCP IP from the local network. <laughs> yeah, so this is where the frequently questioned answers, that is what it is called, uh, play 9FQA, that is where this comes into handy. So you've got a old-school Unix system, or Unix documentation style, uh, which should tell you basically more or less what you need to know. The network configuration is not the same as you would do in a typical Unix. But it's still totally doable. It works with DHCP out of the box. Uh, yeah. Okay. But installing from the ISO is just like normally you would install a distribution. Then once you're in the VM, then that's where all the all the stuff that I know is down the toilet and I have to go look at the manual. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's where, um, although the setup, um, there's a YouTube guide uh, which helps a lot called Adventures Adventures in Nine, um, and that person has an excellent installation video because things are still different even in the installation. Um, the hypervisor setup is the same, but once you get into the interface, you'll see. Um, so Doug, oh sorry, that that does answer your question, right? Yes, 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 yes. perfect. Yes. Thank you. So Doug wants to know that while I showed Sam ever so briefly, Sam being the simpler text editor, uh, Doug wants to know what the Acme text editor looks like. Ah, as I fail to set up uh, to launch a window. Perfect. So Acme is different, right? Like you've got, it's kind of the one of those things that a lot of people know about Plan 9 of the people who understand or have some familiar from some familiarity with niche Unixes and not Unixes as it were. Um it's like hex editor that's baked into nine and it can do a lot of stuff. Um so I've got my it's been a while since I've worked with Acme, by the way. Uh but I should be able to, I was trying to work with a sound earlier. So we go to new, Oops. and in order to uh, launch a new window, we hit, we highlight new, and then I believe click the middle mouse button, and here we have a new window. It's it works with something called plumbing as well, which is basically, as I understand, um, highlighting things and then doing things with text. Everything in Plan 9 is text-oriented. Um, everything that can be is. So we have our just a playlist. And so we can go look star.plist. And then I can't remember if we have to highlight the entirety of it. But this is evaluating commands. And again, it has been a while since I've worked with <laughs> clearly a while. But let's pretend that I opened a file properly because I know what I'm doing. Um, it's tiling in some in a in a way. Um, you can drag windows and you can close you can open tabs i find it gets quite um 
busy. Not like there's actively things going on, but it's too easy to accidentally make a big tab or accidentally make a big um, circle of windows, which is then you have to close the thing and then open it again. Not fun to me, but a lot of people really like it. Is there any, um, does that answer your question, Doug? <laughs> it's a start. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, I think this whole presentation is a bit of a start and yeah. And it is. Mm. So what things have I done in plan nine, Paul asks. And um, it's been, I, I, volunteered to do the presentation on at a time when I hadn't really set up Plan 9 for about a month, or had Plan 9 set up for about a month. So it's been a little while. Um, but for me, Plan 9 has been an interesting way to, uh, or an interesting community, first and foremost, to get involved in. Um, I don't have a lot of my code here presently, um, but it's really just been a learning exercise, something to like, provide documentation for publicly. Eventually, I would like to present more documentation. Um, and it's really just been an interesting way to dive into something that's very, very different from what I would expect. Um, it's helped me, I'd like to say it's helped me in my programming a little bit, um, not just because of the simplicity and the ability to insert UTF-8 into C, um, but the way that you look at a network in a Plan 9 system is, again, different, weird, cool, powerful. I like it. Um, is Are there any other questions that come to people's minds? Again, like, there's so many things here where, like, it's not clearly, like, it, it's, there, you have to under, you have to try it, I think. To really be able to find a way to like say that to to have an analogy to Unix, you kind of have to have like an experience with Plan Nine, which I highly recommend. Oh, something that looks weird to Unix people, as if the entire like opening a terminal is not weird. And that's not a dig at you. It's um. So, in order to a good example here. I've mentioned using the remote, um, what's that called? The way that you would mount a file, I haven't actually shown that. Um, a lot of the system design would feel different to Unix people, but is accessible in a very similar way. So if you access the bootloader, um, if you want to change a boot setting configuration, I believe it's nine is <laughs> ah. oh, so I can't uh mount the boot sector because I'm in a remote terminal. I believe I don't have that right access or something um hmm well, something that definitely would look weird is Mothra Mothra is the web browser for plan nine. Um, which has no JavaScript support. You can't get Firefox in here. Um, it's a bit too 
like Firefox, you'd have to port way too much code. Uh, so Mothra, we could go to, for example, duck.go, and I haven't mounted web. So in order to access, I, in order to access the web, you kind of have, like there's a number of things that Plan 9 provides services for as file systems. And in order to access things, you have to remember to mount them. I'm sure someone later on is going to correct me on this. Again, things are different. Hmm. Oh, right. You just type web.s. So, and here you have duck.go. So yeah, there. besides the fact that, uh, to answer Bobby's question, what are the, like, what are the actual applications that I would be using um, on my day-to-day -day life if I were to be a primarily Plan 9 user? Um, so a lot of things, it's going to sound like I'm, it's going to sound kind of redundant, but a lot of the ways that you would normally do uh, I mean, text editing is done within SAM or um, the Acme, but Plan 9 is primarily a programmer's system. There's a lot of work right now to get uh, codes and like to get normal people utilities into Plan 9 through Plan 9 front. Um, web or web sorry, not web browser, web mail and uh, Gmail, for example, is something that you kind of have to hack your way together uh, to like to get access like to um, access your mail. It's not something that I have offhand done. Oh yeah, so um, one thing that is very nice within Plan Nine is RC is the shell. Um, if I go into bin, you don't end up crowding your bin directory nearly as much because if I was, even though that is a lot of things, uh, you don't crowd your root directory as much um, with like USR bin, uh, user bin, etc. Everything is in the bin directory. However, things are mounted over each other. In Plan 9, there's something called UnionFS, or there's a implementation of UnionFS uh, so if I wanted to launch an audio program, I can just audio slash MK, MK playlist, which is disappointing, or not disappointing, but it is um, not quite the oh wow moment that I think I thought it was when I presented in this way. But the idea to, provi uh, to provide uh, one over one directory overlaid on top of another is technically a lot more challenging than I think it looks like. Yeah. So, is there any other questions that people have? Because I'm kind of running out of like things that I can show off the top of my head. Like, I could write C code, I guess, but that's a bit of a time investment here. Are you able to make use of Plan 9 for like regular day-to-day -day work? And if so, what kind of work? Uh, what, oh. what kind of things do you use? 
So I guess that is actually Bobby's question, which I misunderstood. Uh, so a lot of your regular day-to-day -day work, for me, um, I do not use it regular. I do not use it day-to-day. -day. Um, it could be a daily driver if you were a programmer in the early 2000s before the internet. Um, a lot of what you end up doing, if you are to use it as a daily driver, is to VNC, for example, into a Linux desktop or a BSD desktop to get Firefox and stuff. Um, because while it is very text-oriented, um, it's the bra the browser capabilities are pretty limited. Uh, it's designed as a research operating system, has a lot of users, but most people that I have run into on IRC and stuff end up using like FreeBSD or Linux at the same time as they're as they're developing on Plan Nine. Um, it's a big inspiration for a lot of people. Uh, in terms of the capabilities it provides, a lot of people really like to move things that they like into Plan 9 and vice versa. Um, but I would not recommend it if you were like someone whose primary job it is to edit Word files, like Microsoft Word files. That would be bad. <laughs> um, there's IRC. It ends up being where you like mount a... Uh, you can mount a, a, what's that called? Sorry. So you have like your, I have forgotten the name for the IRC client here, but chat is one of the questions that Bob B asked. And I think most people like to chat in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, oops. And find is called walk in plan nine, which I always forget. Uh, IRCRC is the, Thing is the IRC client, which although it looks like it's um, it, it's a fully supported IRC client, but the way that you interact with it is through external scripts. Um, IRCRC uh, exports a file system, I believe that might be IRC seven, but uh, yeah. So uh, browser and email are not things that you would necessarily want to use if it was your job, um, but they are things that you can kind of hack together and get working. Yes, shell scripting is one of the best parts of Plan 9. Um, as I mentioned, IRCRC, uh, entire IRC system written in a shell script. Everything that you can think of, with very few exceptions in Plan 9 that doesn't deal with binary data, you can use in a shell script. Um, the shell scripting is a little bit different in Plan 9 versus, uh, say, Bash, but it is, in my experience, a bit more powerful. Oh, yeah. Um, and this is where things get a bit different, if I recall correctly. Uh, oh, no. Okay, yep. It has been a, a RC, like you said. Um, there is no bash in uh, Plan 9 for all sorts of reasons. So is RC like a shell? Oh, absolutely. So RC, I can do 
Like, RC is what I'm running at right now. Um, in addition to being a shell script, I can script on the command line as well. Okay. Uh, so. So do you have man pages too? Like, is it similar yeah. to that? Okay. So you can do, yeah. could you just do man RC and humor me? Yeah, totally. Okay, okay. Interesting. Mm. One important thing that I think people would benefit from if they were trying to still do normal work as normal people do. Um, Plan 9 provide, are there, the original authors of Plan 9 started out, or started a um, Plan 9 in user space, which is really just a way to get Plan 9 tools on Linux, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, NetBSD, SunOS, if you're so brave. Um, so I've also compiled that and use it and was using it for a while. I found that the way that it interacts between the system is not always super compatible with the underlying operating system. And that's why I prefer to use Plan 9 itself. Uh, but you've got your proper demonstration of Acme. And yeah. Does it have Perl? Oh, no, definitely not. Um, there is, that sounds like, it, there's, I'm sure someone has probably uh, written a Perl implementation. Um, Perl, Python are things that, yes, you can move in, but by default, it does not have on purpose. Um, Plan 9 is designed to be as simple and in some ways, opinionated as possible, which a lot of people don't necessarily like at first. Um, the So there is an older Python implementation. Golang is ported very well. Um, but the system itself, where possible, you want to use RC scripts or write in C. Um, Golang may be for compatibility. Is there kind of like a philosophy that the operating system was developed under? Like, and even if it's a philosophy philosophy that juxtaposes it against Unix, Linux, and Microsoft, like what were they trying to mm. they trying to accomplish? That is a very good question. Um, one that I think I really should have expanded upon on my on the initial slideshow. So, um, Plan Nine, as, although it is a research operating system, like. What were they researching and why? From my understanding, it wasn't such a like it's not intentionally a reaction to Unix so much as is it so much as it is just like a what if we did this a bit differently? And that, from what I understand, is how this system took off. Um, it's not designed as a foremost commercial operating system. Um, there was a spin-off of it that Bell Labs put a lot of put some effort into, I think, called um, Inferno, which for a while could run in a browser. It's a, like a virtual machine itself, kind of like Java. Um, that did not take off, but it's still a very cool system that I think a lot of people could benefit from seeing at the very least. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, Paul asks, are these the same people who did Golang? Um, some of the people involved in Golang were the same people uh, who were involved in Plan 9. 
Uh, it's not as though it's like everybody from the original team. But from my understanding, it is Rob Pike. Yeah, thank you. I almost forgot the name. Um, who might be at the Waterloo thing. We'll see. And um, Charles Forsyth, a Waterloo graduate, I think. Someone who worked in some other things. Was very, uh, another Waterloo local was very influential in Plan 9 and, to a large extent, some of the things that came after it. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you, Sean, for mentioning that. Yeah, I almost forgot. So which is the website if I wanted to play with this? And... Mm, yeah, I can write that into chat, but it is... Um, so there's the nine fans, uh, Plan 9 from user space. However... Uh, that's like the tooling within a Unix system to get a Plan 9 accessible workstation. Um, but uh, ninefront.org would be your uh, primary uh, system providers, I guess. The people who write the most recent version. That's the gateway drug, is it? <laughs> that is the gateway drug. Okay. Bookmarked. Nice. Yeah, so I think that is all and more than I plan to say here. Um, if there are any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. But I think like I'm almost in an hour here and getting quite worried that I've said the wrong that I've um yeah, I'm not sure that everything I've said here is necessarily completely accurate. So double check if there's something that you think I said incorrectly. <laughs> Who designed the font? I don't know. Um, it might be one of the people. Oh, ask Ryan the Plan 9 IRC. Cat uh, V on OFTC.net. They are very interesting people. Many opinions will be shared, and some of them you may disagree with. But they're really nice people, so like... They're not jerks, and they're very good at not being offensive. Yes, yeah. Um, like the whole shit hub example. Like they're not the most. I don't know. They're fun. Interesting sense yeah. of humor. Yeah. Interesting so. sense of humor. Yeah, exactly. So I'm gonna stop sharing this. Remember how to do that. So yeah, thank you everyone for watching. Um, there is also uh, Ori Bernstein, I believe is his name, had done, in addition to um, Adventures in Nine, two people who have YouTube channels who I'd highly recommend watching. Um, the talks are a lot longer, but give a much better overview of Plan Nine from either the introductory perspective or the what is this thing and how do we use it? <laughs> okay, thank you all. Thank you for the talk. Yeah, very interesting. Do you think you'll be attending the uh, the workshop in, what did you say, April? Um, it is either April or March. Um, and I would quite like to. It's... For people who aren't students, I think a $20 fee 
Um, they just want you to sign up at a time. I wouldn't quote myself on the $20 fee, but it's not expensive to attend. Um, and very much worth it. From what I can tell. Oh, well, yeah, that sounds like we should see if uh, either yourself or someone else would like to come afterwards and uh, maybe uh, summarize some interesting highlights. Mm, yeah, I can definitely do that. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Uh, yeah, deadline to register is March 10th. So I'm, yeah, getting there. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. Our monthly meetings are free of charge and open to all, so please join us if you are around. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month from 7 to 9 p.m. in Kitchener. Please visit kwlug.org for upcoming topics, for directions, and for additional meeting information. In addition to attending a meeting, you can participate in the KWLUG community by joining our email discussion list, by offering to present a topic, or just by spreading the word about this podcast. Thanks also to IndieServe Networks, Archive.org, and CCJ Clearline for hosting our website and multimedia files, to the Working Center for offering meeting space, and to the many people who participate in the KWLUG community. Until next time, goodbye world.